0: Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with your host, Dr. Anish Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about the care of gynecologic cancers with Dr. Christy Kim, Dr. Kim is an assistant professor in clinical medicine at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology.
1: So, Christy, maybe we can start off by you telling us a little bit about yourself and what it is you do.
2: So, I consider myself as a general medical oncologist. Um, I came as an immigrant from um, South Korea. Uh, Unfortunately, I lost my dad from small cell lung cancer during my training year. So it's been uh, a rough journey. Um, uh, uh, about eight months ago, I lost my sister from ALK-positive lung cancer. So it's been a tremendous year and challenges, but I've seen how the clinical trial impacted somebody's out- outcome and their cancer journey. Um, I've seen the loratinib that was, she was on um, as a trial, how it kind of melted her cancer in her brain. So it's a remarkable, challenging year, but uh makes you grow um as a medical oncologist.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm so sorry to hear of your losses, but um I understand that your practice is general medical oncology, but you have a, a special interest in gynecologic cancers, is that right?
2: Yes, that's my my passion. I have a um I build up my interest, uh um it's my second job. I was hired as mainly um, uh, taking care of the gynecologic cancer patient.
1: And so tell us a little bit more about gynecologic cancers. What, what type of cancers do you see? What does that entail? And, and why, why was that your passion? What was it about gynecologic cancers that was particularly special to you?
2: it's uh, everything that kind of um package into it. uh so, um there's a beginning in cancer journey and there's an end um some people their cancer um they go into remission and some people they their disease succumb to you know their end and you know i think as a, a, a medical oncologist, there are always something that you can do to improve and impact on somebody's life um uh as a provider or oncologist um, I feel I see that this is a, more like a teamwork like a multidisciplinary um, and I see a lot of ovarian cancer patients uh, uh, uterine or endometrial cancer and it's a multidisciplinary uh, uh, involving care with the gynecological oncologist radiation oncologist nursing staff uh, we have a nutritionist we have a social worker um, and uh, survivalship and palliative care team. It's a challenging work, but I think in the end, you know, how we handle somebody's life and their cancer journey, how we can impact in their lives. And I think it's a, such a very gratifying, rewarding job.
1: Yeah. You know, some of the concepts that you mentioned in terms of dealing with a multidisciplinary team and the challenges and so forth are are really ubiquitous when we think about cancers in general. So why, um, you know, with your family history, and and you started off by telling us about your dad and your sister, who both succumbed to lung cancer, what drew you to gynecologic cancers in particular? So I...
2: I I was seeing more of a kind of collagen cancer patient. So you build up your interest, you read more about it, you engage in, and you reach out some answers. And you settle. You don't settle for less. You always want the challenging part. You want the best treatment for all your patients and people who are heavily treated. And you want to go beyond what's available. You won't settle for. You know I, I think that's really. Um, Impactful, but patients also motivate you. you, you um, they really motivate you to challenge things and kind of improve and impact. And um, going back to my sister's cancer journey, she was on clinical trial drug that was not yet yet FDA approved. I've seen how it melts uh, her cancer in her brain, and I think it's very important that we, uh, you know, uh, we want the best, really, you know, effective drug to be available so that many people can, you know, um, take. Uh, um, get you know benefit from and being able to live longer, being able to you know improve um, their quality of lives and be able to attend their grandchildren's birthdays and social gatherings, and that's you know really meaningful to them. I think as oncologists, that's really important.
1: Yeah, and so you know thinking about gynecologic cancers in particular, and. Um, a couple of questions. How does the prognosis of gynecologic cancers vary when you compare it to other malignancies?
2: So um, for example, ovarian cancers, there's no really effective um, screening markers in, because the um, symptoms are very vague and um, um, important part of the, you know the, um, the best outcome is to detect early or preventions, there is no such, you know, uh, effective preventions or uh, screening process. And so unfortunately, when the patients present with the, when they are in advanced stage and read, where their belly is full of cancers. So ha- this is a challenging part. Um, and certain type of cancers are preventable, such as like HPV-related and cervical cancer, for example, is the number one gynecologic cancer worldwide. In US, it's a uterine cancer again there is a you know um screening but just kind of don't let your symptoms down and just do uh, you know seek uh, medical help and medical tensions you know when you're not right um
1: yeah. So, I mean, gynecologic cancers, as you point out, is really a, a spectrum. And within that spectrum are, are things that are potentially preventable, like uh, HPV-related cervical cancer, and other things that are really kind of the, the silent uh, uh, killer or the silent cancer, things like ovarian cancer that can present very late, um, where we really don't have a good screening and don't really have good prevention. Um, so, in thinking about uh, the spectrum of these cancers, and in thinking about your your sister's journey, uh, where it seems like you were particularly passionate about clinical trials, talk to us a little bit more about some of the clinical trials that are ongoing in gynecologic cancers. Are do you find that those are more frequent in uh, the more advanced cancers like ovarian?
2: So our um, goal are to bring the more powerful, effective uh, drug uh, up front because that's the best chance to cure disease or best chance to keep the disease in remissions. Unfortunately, ovarian cancer, 70% of the cancer relapse or recur a later time and the progression-free uh, subsequent interval goes shorter and shorter and subsequently patients succumb to their disease. So you can imagine, you want to bring the most effective, you know, treatment. So nowadays, uh, it's more like a, a molecular uh, biomarker-driven. Um, you want to test the uh, BRCA mutations for everybody, the genetic testing, regardless of their uh, family history, because there is a uh, more, um, powerful, effective drug called um, PARP inhibitor. Um, so you don't want to miss that chance. And, they are combining to uh, immunotherapy again. I think it's not for one size fits all. I think it's just very personalized, you uh, know, manner that I think we are getting closer to success of uh, you know treating, having the patients more cured. And I think we live in an era where we're here, myeloma colleagues, seeing cure. It's unheard of my training. So I think it's totally, totally encouraging. But it's, again, this is a very collaboration to uh, and having objective, you know, if there's a clinical trial available, that's the best chance to move forward. That's the best chance to have the impact on somebody's life. So have them enrolled, have them screen. We have a, such a wonderful clinical trial people. Um, they're really w- uh, willing to work with you and we want to do everything that we can to have an impact on somebody's life.
1: Yeah, especially when um, disease can be very advanced, you know, ovarian cancer, as we've talked about previously on the show, is one of these that can sneak up on people because the the symptoms that people present with are, are generally things that are overlooked, a little bit of abdominal pain, maybe some constipation, maybe, you know, a little bit of bloating. And people kind of, you know, put it aside and say, oh, well, that's nothing. And then, you know, one thing kind of leads to another. And by the time that they actually present, um, they, they've presented with quite advanced disease. So, You know, when you talk about uh, cancer being biomarker-driven and clinical trials, tell us about some of the clinical trials that you're particularly excited about that are ongoing now in the space of ovarian cancer. Are there things that you're really excited about that uh, might be, you know, the next therapy that will melt away cancer very much like it did for your sister? So,
2: uh, ovarian cancers are... Um, you know, there are many subtypes. It's not one-size-fits-all. High-grade serous cancers are treated differently versus low-grade. And there are more and more paper published. Um, we just had a uh, SGO, Society of Gynecology and Oncology, annual meetings that, you know, um, clear cell examples are, you know, respond better to immunotherapy. There's more KRAS mutation. There are HER2 mutations that are noted in certain type. There's MAC inhibitor that are really work, uh, really effective in, you know, low-grade uh, serious carcinoma. So as you can imagine, and also there's a mucinous um, ovarian uh, sub- subtype that respond well to GI-driven, you know, a treatment modality. So I think uh, knowing up front that you want to know what the patients have. So I think it's really important to kind of try to stratify and kind of know what their, you know, the subtypes are, what are their markers so that we can better serve them to effective, um, you know, drug that are going to have a impact on their outcome.
1: Yeah. So, so one can imagine that uh, the clinical trials that are ongoing at the moment um, may be directed based on particular biomarkers. Is that right? And and are there any that are are exciting for you for particular biomarkers? So there are um, the
2: monoclonal antibody against c twenty five, and it's a actually available at Yale uh, as a first-line. The exclusion criteria is if patient has a BRCA um, mutation that disqualifies because the PARP inhibitor is supposed to be more effective. But these are something that we want to, you know, have a move forward and have more people to engage if it's a really effective, you know, drug that we want this to be available to everybody. There is another one is called anti alpha. the antibody drug conjugates and these are something that's really we've been seeing time and time again for you know from journal to journal and from uh, national meetings that you know people are responding these are platinum resistant that we really have a really dismal prognosis and we want this to be bring up and to be available for these um, uh, ladies who are suffering from brain cancer we are Our goal is to keep the brain cancer as more like a chronic disease where, you know, they are, as long as they are on the right medications and they're going to, you know, live long as long as they can and we can mitigate the toxicity and improve their, you know, uh, outcome.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's so important to really try to um, tailor uh, therapy for cancer patients. And the hope really is that uh, we, we control cancers so that uh, people can go on living their lives. Well, we're going to take a short break for a medical minute, but please stay tuned to learn more about the care of gynecologic cancers with my guest, Dr. Christy Kim.
0: Funding for Yale Cancer Answers comes from Smilo Cancer Hospital with an event focused on nutrition for cancer survivorship, presented by the Smilo Cancer Care Center in Trumbull. April 14th, register at yalecancercenter.org or email canceranswers at yale.edu. The American Cancer Society estimates that over 200,000 cases of melanoma will be diagnosed in the United States this year, with over 1,000 patients in Connecticut alone. While melanoma accounts for only about 1% of skin cancer cases, it causes the most skin cancer deaths. But when detected early, it is easily treated and highly curable. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as Yale Cancer Center and at Smilo Cancer Hospital, to test innovative new treatments for melanoma, The goal of the Specialized Programs of Research Excellence in Skin Cancer grant is to better understand the biology of skin cancer with a focus on discovering targets that will lead to improved diagnosis and treatment. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio.
1: Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Christy Kim, We're learning about the care of patients with gynecologic cancers. And, you know, before the break, Christy, you were talking about um, how, you know, you really treat a variety of cancers, including ovarian cancer. We talked a little bit about how this tends to present late um, and how now this is more biomarker-driven and that there are clinical trials uh, that really try to personalize therapy uh, for patients trying to find the right drug for the right patient's cancer, um, taking into consideration the biology of that particular patient's um, cancer. I want to kind of take a step back. We we had mentioned that gynecologic cancer was really a spectrum. from the very advanced ovarian cancers to potentially preventable cancers. Um, Talk a little bit about um, HPV-related cervical cancer. And, you know, have you found that uh, screening has really made a difference in terms of the management of patients with cervical cancer? So, in other words, are the number of Cervical cancer patients that you see with HPV related disease um, decreasing in terms of both their frequency with which they present with cancer and the severity.
2: So in in US, as much as the vaccines um, that we're promoting, which is quite effective, you know, the vaccine rate is uh, um, sadly um, low compared to worldwide global. So this is a global issue. This is also uh, problem in United States as well, and this is a preventive disease, and so we want to, you know, um, educate general populations It's the, you know, importance of the, you know, having kids, uh, girls and boys, and to get vaccinated uh, when they are young, because that's the, where the vaccine works. The, most effectively.
1: I mean, that would be fantastic. But it it sounds like what really will be required in order to eradicate cervical cancer is to get people vaccinated. And given the fact that, you know, I think it's around a third of eligible patients actually do avail themselves of, of vaccines, we might be a ways off on that. Are there thoughts as to how we can do that? Any thoughts as to how we can Get more people vaccinated to achieve that goal by 2045.
2: Definitely, I think um, as a um, in, in school program or like um, a pediatricians, and I think it's something that we should really have a general awareness uh, in this disease such a preventable. And having HPV doesn't mean that guarantee that the uh, um, people will develop cancer, but at least uh, once you get the cancer, it can be quite deadly. So having that education early on through the school. Um I, we're aiming, you know, uh, uh school age, you know, um nine, ten, eleven, those are the the group of um age that we start having vaccinations. And I think it's important that it comes from school, you know, teacher, um the teacher, school nurses and um uh pediatricians when they're going through that, you know, um, age-appropriate vaccinations. I think it's uh, uh, important to have that work out and educate more people.
1: Yeah. And so for the people who do present to you these days with cervical cancer, is it fair to say that the majority of them are not vaccinated? Unfortunately, majority of the people are not vaccinated. Um, So and more and
2: more that you want to have this to move forward and improve you know vaccinations
1: um yeah do you see any people who are vaccinated who get cervical cancer and if so is their stage at presentation lower from um i'm not aware
2: of patients who already had a
1: vaccinations
2: uh, but there are you know if vaccination is now 100% you know efficacious so i then i yeah. am not you know aware of a uh, you know number in terms of the Statistic, yeah I don't know. but What's I mean right? it, it would it's
1: seem right. that that would be very fair that you don't really see anybody who's been vaccinated presenting with cervical cancer I I believe that the HPV vaccine is about 98 percent effective so to try <laughs> mm-hmm. to try to find uh, the two percent uh, for whom it may not be effective uh, would be would be pretty rare so yes. important to get to get vaccinated yes listener. It's a, I think it's important to kind of have their listener to hear that, you
2: know, current yeah. vaccination is quite effective.
1: Yeah. I mean, the other, the other piece to the cervical cancer story, of course, is screening. And unlike ovarian cancer, where there is no screening test, we actually do have screening tests for cervical cancer. Do you find that that really allows you to find cervical cancer at an earlier stage? And how does that impact your treatment?
2: Yes, definitely. Um, At age 21 is the first uh, patients who get, you know, start screening. Um, If you're um, negative uh, for, um, then you have, uh, you get retested in after three years. So just talk to your gynecologist and, you know, um, uh, we want to, you know, detect early. We want to screen them, want to get vaccinated early on.
1: And the rationale there, of course, is that um, unlike ovarian cancer where you said, you know, for many patients this presents when it's widespread, it may be metastatic at the time of presentation, there's, you know, little that you can really do in terms of curative uh, therapies, although we do try to kind of mitigate uh, the the effects of cancer making it more of a chronic disease, if you catch cervical cancer early and you detect it early, it is potentially uh, highly treatable and almost curable. Isn't that right? Yes. So
2: nowadays, uh, there are techniques uh, called trachelectomy where you can preserve your uterus. So uh, especially women in childbearing age can have a baby. Um, And they can have effective treatments, you know, um, and preserve their fertility. So the key is to detect early, that's the potentially curable.
1: So, so we've talked a little bit about ovarian cancer. We've talked a little bit about cervical cancer. You know, it seems that the other big category of of cancers uh, under the gynecologic cancer umbrella is endometrial cancer. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and how it presents and and its prognosis, vis-a-vis the other two? So endometrial cancers
2: are heterogeneous now um, because we have the the TCGA the the cancer genome atlas. We have more genomic um, sub subclass- classifications. So there is a uh, um, the the MSI microsatellite instability high. There's a poly mutation there. So copy number low, copy number um, high. So you can imagine they're very heterogeneous, they're very different, you know, entities. So you cannot categorize you. You want to know what the what the subtypes are because the treatment is really important and that's really gonna impact the patient's outcome. Um for example, high grades uh serous um carcinoma, we know about the 20% exhibit HER2 um expressions, and the study have shown that patient having combination with the carbotaxel, so, uh, with the trastuzumab, you know, it can impact, uh, improve the patient outcome, improve the overall survival. So you don't want to miss that opportunity,
1: you know, the time of the
2: molecular testing is early on at the time of diagnosis. <laughs>
1: And so, what is the prognosis of patients who present with endometrial cancer, understanding that there's obviously variability, but in general, what is the prognosis of endometrial cancer relative to cervical cancer and ovarian cancer? So,
2: uh, depending on the subtype, so um, high grade, the copy number high, um, or high-grade serous carcinoma or uterine serous carcinoma, it tend to have a poor you know, um, outcome, poor prognosis tend to relapse. relapse. And it's more, more like a multidisciplinary with the radiation um, uh, to the pelvis and um, uh, uh, high-dose brachytherapy uh, uh, brachythe to the vaginal cuff because that's the most common area of the local recurrence. So it's more like a more multidisciplinary um and you have a you know coordination just like orchestra you need to kind of have a um multidisciplinary team to have the right um treatments in the right setting
1: yeah it seems to me that the whole concept of multidisciplinary care is really something that um runs across all gynecologic cancers as well as all cancers writ large. Uh, Do you want to talk a little bit about um, the team that uh, uh, you have in place in gynecologic cancers in terms of a multidisciplinary effort and why that's important?
2: Yes, um, because as we uh, discussed, the cancers are very heterogeneous and you want to have a best outcome and you want to have the multidisciplinary team, gynecologic oncologist, radiation oncologist, nursing staff, nursing team, um, social worker, nutritionist, um, uh, health care team involved early on. Um, again, some women, you know, they have full of their life and, you know, with a cancer diagnosis, their life is upside down and going through this emotion, you know, social Challenges and financial toxicity—we all have experienced that in, in our life. Um, as a provider, we want to provide as best care so that women are not, you know, uh, stressing about their, you know, um, finances. And we have a, you know, financial counselor, social worker who will be able to help, um, you know, as much as we can to help them their cancer journey as smooth as possible.
1: Yeah. So, I I think that that's a very fair point. And in addition to the financial toxicity, many of these patients also have to deal with uh, physical toxicity and side effects of various treatments. You know, in many cancer centers, there is a a palliative care team, which isn't really palliative care in terms of end of life, but um, also is very important in terms of helping with side effects and and getting over some of the physical toxicities of treatment. Um, Talk a little bit about um, how palliative care is integrated into the multidisciplinary team in gynecologic cancers.
2: So it's important to have that palliative care team um, on board, you know, in the beginning, especially if it's advanced care, uh, advanced disease, um, you know, presentations and patients with uh, incurable disease and people are facing as a, you know, lifelong treatment. Um, it really impacts uh, somebody's life and they're not just the patients alone, but their families and kind of have that their, you know, support that there's a, uh, at the end of the day, there are always people who are going to support you regardless uh, what, what stage you are in their cancer journey. Um, I think it's a misnomer that, you know, palliative care doesn't translate to hospice. We're not giving up. We are supporting as much as possible to help you relieve, you know, suffering, relieve, you know, toxicity. And uh, I think it's really um, educate the patients. You set the stage and as a um uh, oncologists to kind of have that you know um, it's a holding hands together it's not the you know hospice only a part of the you know palliative care team does but you know it's a kind of embracing you know the cancer journey I think it's really impactful it's very powerful like uh, I think it's you know important to kind of stress that and we want to you know have the patient's wish to you know the how. Do they want their cancer to be, you know, and some people don't want to spend their last, you know, uh, toward the end of their cancer life um, at, in the intensive care in the hospital. So have them to care ring early on.
0: Dr. Christy Kim is an assistant professor in clinical medicine at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is at yale.edu and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital.